certainly is good for us to be here today, to always be assembled in the character of the saints, to do so with a perspective and the desire to offer our worship unto the God who made us, who in fact made opportunity for us in light of spending all eternity with Him. I might take just a quick moment, a brief time if I might, and at least announce a matter or two. This coming Wednesday, I think as we noted last week, uh, I'll be speaking at the Zion Vacation Bible School, and certainly I know that that time conflicts with the one here, so I'll just encourage you to keep that effort in your prayers, if you would, the delight that goes often with encouraging in light of a Vacation Bible School effort. Next Sunday morning, the McBroom Chapel Church of Christ will be meeting again for the first time in several years. You may know that their building was um, rather significantly damaged by a tornado. Uh, you and I remember when that passed so close to here not, not that long ago. But that building has certainly been unusable since then. It's torn down, and now they've rebuilt it, and uh, they're going to meet for the first time uh, next Sunday. And they've invited uh, myself to, to deliver the, the lesson that day, and so I, I will be there. I might also say that two weeks from today, I'll be in a gospel meeting in, in Van Buren County. And so I'll not be here uh, that particular week either. But I would in, in, invite your prayers on behalf of that effort at McBroom Chapel as well as that effort at, at Spencer uh, beginning on June the 18th. But today, you and I are here. And aren't we thankful? There's no better place to be. It is a highlight of the day and the week. And it's our joy and privilege to assemble ourselves together in this way. The lesson title, as you can already tell, They Crucified Him. You may notice that we've come to the first Sunday in June, and we agreed way back in January that we would invest the first Sunday of each one of the months as a recollection, a study, a consideration of one major aspect of the life of our Lord. And so far during the course of this year, we have already considered His baptism, His birth. We also gave thought over the course of that series to the scene of the temptations and most recently to the transfiguration. But today, it's the crucifixion. There's no event, I suppose, in the history of the world any darker, any more fraught with eternal consideration than that which is connected to the crucifixion. For the next few moments, may you and I empty the thoughts from our mind that would distract us from reflecting upon what took place at that time and the meaning it has for one and all and what ought to be our response to it. You may notice as we then do that, I thought that I would present this lesson in the following way. The scene of the crucifixion, with regard to some of the particulars, is quite comfortably familiar to us. But isn't it interesting to think about some of the characters that were a part of that episode? The crucifixion was real. I know there are times as you and I read various things written by men, they are stories, they're myths, they're what could have been. But this is what was. The crucifixion was real. There was a very dark moment where the most innocent person ever lived died. And he was killed. It's not that he died accidentally. It's not that he died of old age. He was killed, murdered in every sense of the word. He didn't deserve it. It was such that that death and the characteristics of what surrounded it are monumental matters. Why don't we reflect on some of the people 
some of the characters that were a part, who witnessed it, who were in fact those who occupied some role in it. First, there was the Son of God Himself. You know Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One of Heaven. He was the second member of the Godhead who in fact left the portals of heaven and all the glory that was His while there. John 17, verses 2 and 3 remind us, He Himself said that the glory that He knew and appreciated then was not what He experienced here on earth. But isn't it true in that same conversation? He was one who acted with such humility and selflessness for the, for the well-being of everybody else. I've asked you to notice several verses that detail some of the features of what He did. From His healing activities to the characteristics of His instruction of those apostles, the urgency connected to His insistence about the gospel and the lives of others, He went about doing good. But not only Him, what about the apostles? They were there at that time of the crucifixion too. They were those who had a role in witnessing it. They were the Lord's circle of helpers, handpicked by Him, Luke 6, verse 12, and in so doing, they were the ones to carry on the mission of His effort once He, of course, left the scene of this planet. Those apostles were such that three of them were particularly near to the Lord, Peter, James, and John. In fact, they, not many hours before in the Garden of Gethsemane, had been asked by Jesus to come a bit closer don't you know that they had the opportunity to witness in the clearest way and perhaps have heard that earnest prayer which Jesus prayed? But aside from those apostles, I ask you to consider a larger number of those who followed the Lord, His disciples. Amongst that group were many women. Interestingly enough, some of the earliest of those convicted by the way of the Lord's teaching were those that were female. You and I realize how they're mentioned in Luke 8, verse 3. And not only that, they're highlighted in various ways as tremendous ministers to the effort which would be the gospel of Christ. They were the Jewish leaders. You and I remember these quite well, occupying a role as mentioned of leadership, but they were fierce protectors of what they deemed to be that which God provided to them, their position and their station, and they would not tolerate Jesus as one who would attempt to take some of that reputation from them. Jesus' role as a teacher, as a respected rabbi among the Jewish people, was such that that had captured quite the attention of many people. And the Jewish leaders recognized, in their opinion at least, that Jesus did not uphold what they deemed to be that which was right. They often challenged Him for doing things on the Sabbath. And the Lord never broke the Sabbath commandment. But yet, they accused Him of it. They accused Him of involving Himself in other things, which, of course, was mere assertion. One last thing on that slide at least is Pilate. Pilate was the Roman official, the Roman curator who was ruling over Judah at this particular time. He himself answered to a higher Roman official whose name was Cyrenius. We read about this in Luke 2, verse number 2. It might well be said that this characters, this set of people, only allows us to ask about other ones as well. Roman soldiers. 
the Roman army was known as an army that was well-skilled and schooled in terms of carrying out that which was the bidding. They were respectful of authority, namely the authority of those who were their superiors. As such, it's often considered that they carried out their tasks not only efficiently, but in many cases ruthlessly. Beyond them, what about others that could be listed, such as Mary, the mother of Jesus, such as Simon of Cyrene and even Nicodemus? At this point, with the characters at least highlighted, what about the actual events themselves? I've tried to divide this into a particular setting, sections which will follow chronologically. We might well begin with an introduction to the whole scene. Would you reflect with me on some of the following? And if you wish to just imagine it. I know we have read it many times. We are comfortable with that which occurred in Gethsemane. But may I say what tremendous things took place. The man Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. As he was reared, we appreciate he was a dutiful and obedient son. We read all that in Luke 2, verses 49 and following. He was subject to his parents. In making that observation, you and I notice he really was the Son of God. He was God in the flesh. Call him Emmanuel, which means God with us, to borrow the wording of Matthew 1, verses 21, 2, and 3. It might well be noted in light of that statement, At the age of 30, our Lord was baptized, and He began to preach. He had a message to share. His mission from heaven was to present the soul-saving message that you and I would call the gospel. He came to present what was heaven's decree relative to the message men and women need to hear. It was the greatest message ever told, and nothing has ever surpassed it since. Jesus touched countless lives, certainly by His miracles. He was able to raise the dead and heal the sick. He was able to cure the blind. Even those who had various other ailments, including paralytic matters, the Lord could heal them instantly, and He did. As He touched those lives, there were many people who heard Him gladly. We read in Mark chapter 12. But surely this one who touched lives in that way It does bring us to what we might recognize as the setting, which is number one. And so it was in the Garden of Gethsemane that our Savior Himself, from it would seem the hours from approximately 9 p.m. on till midnight, we read about this beginning in Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. Jesus came here with His disciples. He came here because His heart was heavy in view of what was to transpire the next day. You and I know that Jesus knew what was going to happen. The events of this Garden of Gethsemane took place on Wednesday evening. The next day was to be that day that Jesus would be crucified. You and I don't know the moment of our death. We don't know what may happen with regard to an accident or an illness, but our Savior knew. Can you imagine how heavy your thoughts and your heart might be to know that you were going to be scourged 
and you were going to be nailed to a cross, and you were going to die in that way, and you were going to experience that kind of pain. And so it was that Jesus Himself, under the burden of that moment, had come to this place. And John 18, 2 tells us that He frequently went here as a place of, shall we say, meditation and internal helpfulness. A respite, if you please. In this particular moment, Jesus came there. He came there, as you and I will notice, for a time of prayer. And the prayer was so urgent. The prayer was so intense. Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as Thou wilt. And three times He made a prayer of this character. Three times with their urgency in such a way that Luke will even remind us that the sweat appeared as if it were drops of blood. It might well be appreciated in that statement that the Lord prayed with such intensity and earnestness that as you can see at the bottom of that slide, He submitted unto God. And in that submission, we finally notice that even while He was just closing that final statement, a group of people appeared and Judas was the leader of the bunch. This group appeared with the effort and intent because Judas, of course, was in the process of betraying our Master. And here he came with officers and soldiers. And as you'll notice on that slide, our Lord was arrested. And in that process, you may recall, Peter cut off the right ear of Malchus, but Jesus healed it. One final time, what a statement of meekness and capacity. As a common criminal, Jesus was arrested. On this next slide, you'll begin to see with me that we now come to what about the next location. So all of that happened in the garden. But after that arrest, they took our Lord. While He Himself was in that position of being arrested, they took Him to various officials. First was Annas, and then there was Caiaphas. Now, we're told that Caiaphas was the one occupying the role of the high priest at the time. And the scribes and the Pharisees had assembled there. They were awaiting it. Arrangements had been made in light of the betrayal concerning Judas. And in so doing, they had arranged themselves, prepared to deal with the matter of this person who was such a troublemaker to them, this one called Jesus. As you can see on that slide, they questioned our Lord. They slapped Him. What a matter of insult. And not only in that way, you may remember that this was the very scene in which Peter was asked three times something about his association, and he denied even knowing him. You may recall that in Mark 14, 50, all the apostles had run. They didn't stick around when Jesus was arrested, no doubt fearful for themselves. At this time of this questioning, no, Peter, of course, and John had arrived, and in that distance, Peter denied three times. The third time, he even cursed. I don't know the man. Jesus, from a distance, spied him at that instant. Don't you know, as their eyes locked, that Peter's heart became awfully intense. And the text says he went out and wept bitterly. 
as you and I continue on the slide. Notice what else occurred. Various witnesses were brought in an effort to make accusation against this one called Jesus. And oddly enough, they were false witnesses. But strangely, their testimony didn't agree. Now, even the Jews regarded the need for comparability in testimony. And on this occasion, even the false witnesses were not able to bring about statements sufficiently in agreement that would lead to what they wanted. And so it was, as those contradictions occurred, we finally find this question. It was asked of Jesus, Art thou the Christ, the Son of God? They spat upon Him. They hit Him in His face while He was blindfolded and said, Tell us who hit you. Can you imagine the insult, the absolute blasphemy to treat the Son of God this way? As they did it, of course. You and I come to the set of events I've asked you to highlight. What about setting number three? You might recall in the course of these things, the following events also continued. Early in the morning, they led him to Pilate. Because remember, when they asked him, Art thou the Christ? The Lord's answer was such that they found him guilty in their mind of blasphemy and declared him worthy of death. This one, Jesus, the Son of God, they now declared, these Jews, of course, that he was to die. Early in the morning, they led him to Pilate. The Jews were unable to execute. They couldn't take care of capital punishment. So they had to take Jesus to Pilate, the Roman official who could give those orders. But of course, there were several things that needed to take place. Pilate, you'll notice, questioned them. What, what is this Jesus you brought? What is it that is to be said concerning this? And he listened as they accused Jesus. Pilate questioned the Lord too. He had words with him. And I'm sure you remember as well as I that more than once Pilate said, I find no fault in him. Pilate could find no matter in the Lord, even in light of the accusations they made, that was worthy of the sentence of death. Could I also point, point this out? They had accused Jesus on before Pilate of being a troublemaker. They themselves had found Him guilty of blasphemy. And so what they claimed before Pilate was different than what they themselves had decreed. You find in this so much loss in light of any respectability concerning a matter of law. But yet they accused Jesus before Pilate, of course. At one time, you will notice that Pilate even made this observation. In an effort, once he found out that Jesus was of Nazareth, he knew that Pilate had some, rather that Herod had some jurisdiction there. And so he sent Jesus to be dealt with by Herod. Herod dealt with this rather quickly. He desired Jesus to to perform a magic show. He wanted to see something done that would be miraculous and intriguing and interesting and the Lord wouldn't do it. Miracles weren't for that purpose. Herod rather quickly sent Jesus back to Pilate. 
as you and I turn the slide into the next set of events. We now arrive at the judgment scene. With the Lord having returned to Pilate, there was a call with respect to the chief priests and the rulers. Pilate knew. He appreciated rather well that because of envy, Jesus had been turned over by the Jews. In weakness, Pilate acquiesced. It's true that he questioned the Lord. And you may even notice that in John chapter 18, in John's record of these events, Pilate said, what is truth? He even had an interest in light of those matters. And you may even remember that Jesus on that occasion had said, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. But of course, they weren't going to fight because the Lord's kingdom was not and is not of this world. The church answers to a higher power than any governmental official, any president, any mayor, any individual on earth. In a fascinating way, you and I then appreciate the following. Pilate now reached maybe one final straw. In an effort to get out of the circumstance, I'll tell you what. It is an annual custom that we will release a prisoner whom you desire. I'll release Jesus or I'll release Barabbas. Which do you prefer? It would seem certainly that Pilate had hoped that they would ask for the release of Jesus because Barabbas was a known criminal. He was a murderer. He was an insurrectionist. He was a thief. And yet, the Jews stirred up the people. We want Barabbas. Release Barabbas. And Pilate said, what do I then do with Jesus? And again, being stirred up by the people, they cried out twice, crucify him! Put this pure and innocent man to death. We want no more of him. And with that cry, Pilate took a basin of water, washed his hands, proverbially of the matter, and proceeded to turn Jesus over to this mob. This group that could carry out the sentence. As you reflect upon the travesty of justice of which we've just described, could I invite you to notice? Pilate now gave order for Jesus to be scourged. You and I have often reflected upon scourging, and no matter how often we reflect upon it, it never ceases to touch the mind. That kind of whipping... That kind of beating was a, a very serious and earnest matter that by itself often led to death. The victim was affixed or tied in some very vulnerable position, perhaps like the one you see in the picture. Other records indicate that they were strapped over a post in such a way that their back was what was so openly bare. And then at that point, Roman soldiers who were trained in the matter, rather skilled at using this weapon we call the, the whip, would proceed to flail the victim. Those matters, those particular elements that were tied into the end of the whip, they would break open the flesh. And after just a few of these particular whippings, obviously there would be a great profusion of blood, a great matters of tearing of the flesh, and sometimes beneath even the, some of the muscles. 
but there was the victim. You and I might well remember too that under even Roman, under the law of Moses, whipping certainly was possible. The book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy identifies it. But there, of course, 40 stripes was all that the law of Moses allowed. Roman law had no such restriction. We don't know how many times the Lord was beaten. We don't know how many times He Himself labored there beneath this kind of treatment. As you look at that picture, would you then imagine that's your Savior? He's not your enemy. He's not some criminal known far and wide across the world. He's not some person who acts with such disadvantage. That's your Savior. That's God. And He was willing to do that. If He was willing to do that, should I not at the very least be faithful to Him? And we aren't even done. Let me go back to the previous slide if I might. The soldiers placed a crown of thorns on His head. Obviously, in mocking Him, constructing that crown out of these kind of thorns that were accessible to them in that area. And of course, in so doing, they would mockingly bow before Him and they would strike Him on the head with that reed in an essence of responding to His authority. You and I well know that as that crown was on His head, being struck on the head, those thorns would have been pushed into the scalp. And so it seems quite likely the Lord was now bleeding from His head as well. One by one, as these things were transpiring, you can imagine the agony when we arrive at the final moment of crucifixion. The Lord was given a cross. After being scourged, after facing the other matters of humility and insult and sleeplessness in light of the previous night, He's now handed a cross that He is to carry to the place where He's going to be nailed to it. The last statement of infamy that the Romans would subject their victim to. You've got to carry your own cross to which we're going to nail you. Jesus began to carry it, but Luke seems to inform us that He wasn't able to carry it to the final place of destination. And so, a bystander was asked to help. Maybe my word's too kind. Simon was compelled to help. He didn't seem to have any choice in the matter. And so here he was, assisting the Master to carry the cross. Many people followed. And many of these were those disciples we mentioned earlier. They had known the Lord. They had been those who were blessed by His presence. As Jesus trudged, perhaps slowly, to that final place of destination. They arrived at Golgotha, called the place of the skull. It would seem it was called that because, at least from a distance, it somewhat resembled that. And while there, they stretched out His hands, and though the Son of God He was and could have offered resistance, He did not. They drove those nails into His hands. And so the top picture at the left might be a representation of what you and I can so vividly imagine. First, one nail with all the agony that would go with it as those nerves are penetrated. I might point out there was no bone broken. 
and then the other hand, and then the feet. And finally, our Savior, perhaps in a picture resembling the bottom right, would have been on a cross. And there it was just a matter of waiting for Him to die. There were those who could witness and see and observe, and they could watch the behavior. Did this one revile and curse those who had crucified Him? Did He call down the fire from heaven to consume them? He did not. In meekness and in love, He was able to say things like, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 34. It was this very one who, remember, there was a thief on either side, and he had conversation as he himself involved himself with them. Both of them railed on him initially, but one of them came to recognize that this one was not like himself. Revisiting that previous slide, these events that began then at 9 o'clock on that Thursday morning, you and I remember that the minutes must have seemed so long when one is in that kind of agony. At 12 o'clock, darkness fell across the land. Darkness so thick and so complete. And you and I so easily recollect then that at 3 p.m. mid-afternoon, by your appreciation and mine, the text says, He cried out with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the last statements that he said was, It is finished. John 19, verse 30. It is finished. I have done that, Heavenly Father, which you gave me to do. I've completed the task, the mission, the work that you gave me to do. It is finished. The price had been paid for human sin. As you can see at the bottom of that slide, the greatest being ever to walk the planet had endured what you and I had just read. What we've attempted to imagine and reconsider. Why did he do it? You know the answer to that as well as I do. He loved you and me. He wants us to go to heaven. He does not want us to go to hell. That's why He did it. And He ushered in what we recognize as the gospel of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The blessed gospel that is to be obeyed and is to be faithfully observed and followed and cherished as you and I seek to live faithfully until death. As you and I have thought about the crucifixion, it was truly a pivotal moment in all of history and in all of eternity. What horror! May you and I never forget that the Lord, He Himself admitted, could have called legions of angels to remove Him from the moment, but He didn't. He endured all of that for me and for you. Don't you want to be His servant? Don't you want to love and follow Him? Don't you want to obey Him? The gospel of Christ is such that then it is to be obeyed. Would you believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God? Would you repent of your sins, the very things that caused Him to go to that cross? Would you be willing to confess the sweetness and the grandeur of His name and then to be immersed, baptized in water for the remission of your sins. 
You see, that's the sweetest thing to appreciate, and that's a matter of great joy. If you have become a Christian, but maybe as of recently, you've begun to live a life of habitual sin, you've begun to walk in ways in life which are not pleasing to Jesus, remember, those same nails are still for you. That blood He shed still for you. If we could help you today by making observation of your repentance and confession of those sins, we'd pray along with you. We could be of some help for sure in that regard. And we'd like to use this as a time, a moment of invitation. They crucified Him. And if you in response would wish to become His faithful servant, won't you do it while together we stand and while we sing?